Well, good morning. My name is Chad Myers. I'm our adult discipleship director. It's been too long, hasn't it? Yeah, four of you. Thank you so much. It's been too long since I've been here. Glad to see you. Welcome to those of you in the room. Welcome to those of you joining us online. Whatever state or country you may be in, welcome. I pray God's blessings to you. And welcome to those of you in the balcony. How are you? Good to see you. Yes, yes. I actually prefer the balcony, just so you know. That's where I would sit. Uh, Psychoanalyze me, if you will. That's where I like to sit, is the balcony. Um, I just wanted to say uh, thank you uh, for continuing to pray for me and my family. And uh, you've written some notes and some beautiful cards. Thank you for your prayers. We, we truly feel those. I mean that uh, sincerely. We truly feel those. Thank you for praying for my dad, who was in the hospital over Thanksgiving and Christmas. He got out Christmas Day, so we got to be together as a family on Christmas Day. And he is recovering, so thank you so much. I, uh, I'm touched by your kindness and your grace. It's, uh, it's a privilege to be here. Um, I challenged Bryce earlier this morning. You know it's going to be a good morning when you have uh, Come Thou Fount and uh, the, what's the Martin Luther one? Yeah, Mighty Fortress. Uh, A Mighty Fortress. I challenged Bryce this morning and I said, hey, uh, you got to say Sabaoth in your announcements. Like you got to bring that word in somehow. And he did not. So my new challenge to Bryce is that he actually eats an oyster at the men's oyster roast. I feel like that's fair. And you may think, well, Chad, why are you being so mean to Bryce? He's not even here to defend himself. Well, maybe he should have stayed for my sermon. (laughs) Leave it at that. How about we pray and we get serious around here, okay, friends? Let's pray together, and then we will dive in, closing out this series, The Unhurried Life. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts and our minds, our lives before you. I am flawed and imperfect. This sermon is flawed and imperfect, but you are not. You're pure and whole and strong and holy and true and loving, and your word is true. Speak to us and give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to start off with a question for you. Who or what are you pursuing? Who or what are you currently pursuing? Me and my family like to play a little game. I like personalized license plates. Like, I don't have one, but I like when I come across one driving in the car, and I like how they have uh, decided to communicate something about them by their license plate. And they had to put some thought into this because they, they only get so many letters. And sometimes you can use numbers as letters and so on, but you have to decide... Uh, which consonants we're going to use, which vowels we're going to use, which vowels we're going to take out, and is it going to communicate what we want to communicate? And I really like seeing these license plates. I came across one uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, and it was this, and I need a little help here. It's W-R-K-M-O-R-E. What does that mean? Work more. Work more. Now, I don't know if you can see what kind of car this is, but it's a Maserati. And the implication is, if you, friends, work more, you too could get this Maserati. (laughs) I took the photo from my cracked windshield of my minivan. (laughs) I thought about getting me a work more license plate as well. That would inspire some people, put that on the minivan. Now, I'm not here to shame anyone who has a Maserati or who wants a Maserati, maybe around a $100,000 car. Uh, I'm not here to shame that. 
I simply want to draw awareness to the undercurrent of the message, the message it's communicating, which is dominant, I would say, in Western culture. Do more. Work more. Achieve more. Succeed more. Climb more. Schedule more. Accomplish more. And the undercurrents of this message also saturate the church and our teachings and our reading and our filters. And so we begin to equate value with how much I can do. And we begin to equate worth with what I can accomplish or what I have. And often what this does is it drives a busyness. A busyness that says, I've got to accomplish more so I can uh, prove my value to somebody. And what we often see is now we are a hurried, harassed, and anxious culture. Perhaps more stressed out in America than we've been before. And some might say, well, we're the busiest we've ever been before. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I agree with that. Not too long ago in this country, people woke up and worked with the rhythms of the sun. So they woke up at sunrise, worked all day, took very little breaks, and then when it got dark, work was done. So they go in, they'd eat, and then they go to sleep. 10, 12, 14-hour days. It's not necessarily that we're so much busier. It's not necessarily that we're so tired. But my point is this. Are we soul tired? Do we get to the end of the day and we feel physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausted? Do we feel disconnected? Does our soul, is it able to keep up with our schedule? Or do we feel like we're just trying to keep up? And we got to move on to the next thing. And we're taking what information we can from this meeting or this email because I just got to get it, fire one back so I can get on to the next thing. And I got this lunch schedule and I got to, you know, make sure I check these boxes so I can get on to the next thing. And then we get to the end of the day and we wonder why we're so disconnected. We're so busy and empty and shallow. And then we, we check out. <laughs> we check out. And there are people who are paying billions of dollars using social sciences to encourage more checking out. You got some distractions, and we can help you get distracted from your distractions. And that's how we deal with our problems today. And so I'm very passionate, if you can't tell, about this series and closing it out, The Unhurried Life. And we kicked off this series talking about Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary. And we started talking about how Jesus offers a different way of doing life and moving from anxiety to peace and how we can trade out hurry and slow down and build did an incredible job last week talking about Sabbath where we say no. I think for some people, one of the most holy words in discipleship is no. Because in order to say yes to great things, sometimes we have to say no to good things. And we press pause, and we unplug, and we connect with God, and we connect with self, and then we're truly refreshed. Jesus said it 
I'll read it, Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is, say it with me, easy, and my burden is, say it with me, light. Now, if we just had verse 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, then we may begin to think that the implications of Jesus for our lives is a cot and a vacation. I'm not against a good nap or a nice vacation. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to trade out the yoke, the the thing that is on your shoulders that is governing the way that you are leaning into life. I want you to trade out that for my yoke. So it's interesting that he doesn't just say, just you won't have any responsibility. No, no, no. He, He says, I will give you a way of doing life that is fulfilling, that it's meaningful, that it's purposeful. You see, much of our challenge today, because we're soul-tired, is that we either are engaged in a lot of meaningless activity or we struggle to find meaning in the activity that we do. And Jesus says, I want you to trade the yoke, my yoke, for that. You see, today, I think we're a different kind of tired, so we need a different kind of rest. We're a different kind of tired, So we need a different kind of rest. There is a shallowness that comes as a result of living a surface life. There's a a weariness, is what I mean to say, a weariness that comes as a result from living on the surface. And the question for us is, will we follow the rush of the crowd or the reign of Christ? Will we follow that weariness and just continue to try to cope with it or... By God's grace, will we make some significant shifts in our life? John Ortberg said it like this. For many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. We used to, I grew up in West Texas, Amarillo, Texas. We used to vacation. The mountains of New Mexico and the mountains of Colorado were very close, and so we used to vacation there. We'd often find a cabin near a lake, and we'd do some fishing and maybe some stream fishing. But one of the things that me and my brothers liked to do, as little boys liked to do, was to skip rocks. And you go near the lake, and you would pick up a, a smooth stone and a flat stone, and it couldn't be too light because it would turn in the wind. It couldn't be too heavy because, you know, it wouldn't go very far. But it was kind of this Im- implied competition. You'd take these rocks, and you would skip them. Whoever could get the most skips, you know, was the better rock skipper, if you will, if that's a thing. It's not in the Olympics, but, you know, we would skip these rocks. And for some of us, this is what life feels like, that we're moving at a pace or the way we're doing it just feels like we're going across the surface. We're skipping and we're skipping and we're lightly touching and lightly touching this encounter and lightly touching that, that encounter, but we don't feel like we've made a soul connection with God, with others. Jesus says, I, I, I want my people, I want my redeemed community to have depth and density to them that they are rooted and grounded in who I am and in their identity so that when people come across them, they take note of it. And when they walk on the grass, as to use C.S. Lewis' words, that they actually leave footprints. 
Don't we want to be those kind of people? And Jesus says, I want you to live a meaningful life, but in order for you to live a meaningful life, you're going to have to count the cost and take inventory of what that life will look like. Jesus, to put it in other words, wants us to know the yoke we are saying yes to. He wants us to know the yoke we are saying yes to. Many of you maybe have have heard of, read about, or seen the pictures of the uh, Smith Mansion in Cody, Wyoming. Francis Lee Smith was an engineer and bought some land and decided uh, to build a mansion, but no blueprints and no plan, just kind of, you know, got some wood from a forest fire, the leftover wood, the charred wood, and he started to build, and then he'd just randomly keep building, and he'd build a room here and build a room there and build another level here, and there's only like one level with actual windows, and there's no central heating or air in Wyoming, and there's, you know, one room with a, a wooden stove, and in that wood stove, and that's where they would cook their food, and then sometimes they would stay there because it's warm, and they would sleep on sleeping bags, him and his family, and his his wife, you could probably understand after a while, had had enough of this kind of living, and uh, she's like, no thanks, and so she divorced him and took the kids and went into, a town, into town, and then he threw himself more into this house and just adding stuff and different staircases and towers, and he liked to work on the roof, and tragically, he would never harness himself in and never tether himself in. He fell several times and still never tethered himself in until he was 48 years old. He finally fell to his death. And people look at this, and you can go see this, and you look at pictures of it. And, and it, it looks kind of thrown together. Like, is that, is that what you set out to build? Did you accomplish what you intended? And taken, taken as a word picture for our lives, I wonder if when people look at our lives, does it seem haphazard? Does it seem like we're, you know, just reacting to different demands or different expectations of the culture or whatever might be driving us? Or or do we have a plan when we're constructing our lives? It's not perfect, but does does it look like something? Does it make sense to the watching world around us? So Jesus wants us to live a meaningful life with depth and density. In order to do that, we're going to have to count the cost. And so uh, let's look at Luke 14, 25 through 33. It says this, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, that's a harsh teaching. We'll have to figure out what that means. Yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees you, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. That's how you ridicule someone, is if you use that voice. It's the ridicule voice, just so you know. Or suppose a king is about to go to war. Some things I say just for my own entertainment. Just, I, I know you get that. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Luke 14, 
a strong and somewhat challenging teaching of Jesus and then illustrated by two parables that Jesus gives to us. A little strange when it comes to those parables uh, in the realm of Jesus' other stories, but nevertheless, he is inviting us to consider, to sit down and pause before we're following him, and maybe for many of us, as we're following him, however long we've been following him, to, to pause and take inventory and, and ask ourselves, um, is this what we signed up for? Am I prepared for what we signed up for? This is maybe a little more difficult than what I thought when I signed up. But to take inventory and realize that there's going to be a cost to this thing called following Jesus and to, maybe for some of us, reassess and prepare and live meaningful lives. But we have to count the cost. It's, it's, it's not a stretch to say Jesus doesn't want us to be in a hurry to follow him. That's the main thrust of this path. Jesus doesn't want us to be in a hurry to follow him. Now, that's counter-church-tuitive, right? I just made that word up, as you know. But it's not something you hear in church because there's always this pressure, like you got to do it now and follow Jesus now, and you got to jump in, and what are you waiting on? Do it, do it, do it. you got to go, and we're going to, you know, put that pressure on you. But Jesus says, hold on a second. I don't want you to be in a hurry to do this. I want you to take some time and ask yourself if you're ready to do this. Because it's not easy, but it is rewarding. If we're going to live a meaningful life with depth and really not be weary at the end of the day, first thing we'll need to do is sacrifice. The meaningful life requires sacrifice. The meaningful life requires sacrifice. Look at this 25. It says large crowds were traveling with him. Jesus is a popular person, popular healer, popular teacher, you know, popular counselor. People came to him at, at night. Hey, uh, you know, tell me how to do this. What's going on? He has popularity, but it's later on in his ministry. This is likely his third year of ministry. And I, I, I have this general assumption that early on, Jesus' teaching was somewhat introductory. You know, you have the wedding at Cana, water to wine, and then you have Nicodemus, and Jesus says to him, you know, you have to be born again if you want to see the kingdom. And it's cryptic, but it's because it's cryptic, it's not too blunt. Then you have Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. It's, a, it's challenging, but it's also beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful sermons. And so you read that, and this is early on Jesus' teaching. And then you get to later in his ministry, and he's got a crowd following and in John 6, he says something like this. Uh, yeah, you guys, if you want to keep this up, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Drops the mic, walks away. Doesn't, doesn't explain it or run after anybody at that point in time, but people leave. I don't know if I want to be a part of this, this guy here. That's strange. And then here in Luke 14, these large crowds are following him, and he says such a strong truth that it's going to cost him his popularity because many of them are going to walk away. Jesus sacrificed his popularity for the love of the truth. Jesus sacrificed his popularity for the love of the Father. Jesus sacrificed his popularity for the love of the mission. 
and he invites us to walk in his footsteps. Now, often I'm okay with sacrifice if someone else is footing the bill. You know what I mean? Like, uh, how much is that? Oh, you'll pick it up? This is fantastic. This is, this is why we ask for expensive presents at Christmas, right? Or maybe that's just me. Uh, if you have kids, you know this lesson all too well. My kids, you know, you, having kids is funny because you get them ready, you get, you get them to school, you get them their lunches and everything they need, and then somehow they still forget something and they text you in the middle of the day. You got to bring me this, right? I get this text from my seventh grader the other day, and she says to me, Dad, I need $5 for Kona Ice. Now, Kona Ice is a snow cone truck that goes around to the schools, and it's, it's really good snow cones. Uh, when my kids were younger, they used to call it Cone of Ice. You can see how they would make that mistake. It's a cone filled with ice, and, but it's called Kona Ice, but me and my wife never had uh, the heart to correct them because it was just so darn cute that they kept calling it Cone of Ice. Can we have some money for Cone of Ice? Absolutely. Go get your Cone of Ice. And so she texts me, can I have $5 for Kona Ice? And uh, I didn't have any cash on me, and I didn't feel like going to the bank and then going up to the school. So, you know, I did what any good self-respecting dad would do. I went into her piggy bank. <laughs> Don't act like you've never done it. So I went into her piggy bank, and I looked in there, and there was way more than $5. I was like, oh, well, if she really wants this, you know, she probably won't care if she uses her own money on it. Oh, was I wrong? Well, turn of events happens that we get her the $5, and she starts to not feel good that day, so she has to come home before she can get Kona Ice. I didn't know that, so I asked her after school, hey, how was Kona Ice? And I expect her to be really excited about it. And she said, oh, I didn't get to have it, you know, because I had to come home, wasn't feeling good. And I said, oh, that's a bummer. And she said, yeah, thanks for bringing me the $5. I said, no problem, it's actually yours. <laughs> she said, What? I said, yeah, I just figured if you really, really wanted it, you would be totally fine with you paying the $5 for it. And she said, you're wrong. I wasn't willing to pay my $5 for it. I was willing to pay your $5 for it. <laughs> I, uh, I think I called her some kind. I said, you're, you're like a mooching squirrel. You know these people in your lives? You're like the squirrel that takes all the acorns and puts it in your tree and then holds out hands as the other squirrels walk by. Like, hey, anybody got any acorns? She didn't take kindly to that conversation. I'm working on my dad skills, friends. We're often okay with it if it doesn't cost us anything. We want something, but we want somebody else to sacrifice for us. It's just not how it works, though. Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian author, wrote a short story, which I recently read, called Master and Man. He wrote it in 1895, and it's about uh, a wealthy landowner named Vasily and a peasant named Nikita. And, and, and the peasant Nikita works for Vasily, but Vasily often cheats him out of his uh, daily wages. Nikita knows this, but he knows he can't do anything about it. And so they have this kind of understanding. Well, Vasily is going out. It's a holiday. He's going out to make a business proposition to buy an orchard nearby. And he gets Nikita to come with him. And it says, you know, saddle up the horse and get the wagon ready. And I'm going to go buy this orchard. And Nikita says, oh, it's holiday. What are you doing? And Vasily says, business, business. You know, we've got to go on business. And so they saddle up and they begin to ride in the wagon. But they start to realize that a snow, snowstorm is moving in. It's a Russian snowstorm, different than a South Carolina snowstorm. 
And uh, they, they start to ask this question, should we turn back? And Vasily says, no, 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 we'll be fine, we'll be fine, business, business. And sure enough, they go on for a while and they get lost and they fall into a ditch and Nikita helps them out and then they get lost again and then uh, they find a road and then they end up finding a village and uh, it's gone pretty treacherous at this point in time and they're, they're sitting for a few hours in a host's home and having tea and warming themselves and the hosts plead with Vasily and Nikita, don't go back out, don't go back out, you know, stay here for the night, but Vasily says, nonsense, we'll be okay, business, business, and drives on. And so they go back out for the last time because they get lost again, and then they realize we're lost in the night in the snowstorm, and they start to come to terms with, we will have to stay the night here, and we will very likely die. So they begin to cover themselves up, begin to try to burrow into the snow. Vasily lays in the back of the um, uh, wagon, covers himself up, and as he's laying there thinking of his own death, Uh, all he can think about is how much money he could have made. Business, business, I could have made so much money. He begins to think about other people who've made more than him and how if only he had a little more time, he could make just as much as they could. He wasn't thinking of his family or his kids. He wasn't thinking of Nikita. Business, business. And soon enough, he realizes, I'm going to die out here. So he takes the horse and he leaves on his own, leaving Nikita alone. But in a turn of events... He gets lost, and he gets lost, and he gets lost, and he keeps circling around until finally he winds up right back where he started at the wagon with Nikita. And he gets off the horse, and he goes up and finds Nikita, and Nikita can barely talk, and he says, Vasily, I'm dying. And then all of a sudden, the narrator Tolstoy gives you an insight into Vasily's heart, and something begins to change in him, and he begins to see Nikita. And so he lays his body on top of him to give him the warmth of his body heat, and he covers him over with the warm fur coats that he had. And he lays there, and as he's laying there, he's not thinking of business anymore. He's not thinking of money anymore. He's thinking of saving Nikita. And all he can think about is the joy that is bringing him of saving Nikita. And in the morning when they wake up, Nikita is alive and Vasily is dead. And Tolstoy leaves you with this question. Was it the change of heart that led to the sacrifice, or was it the act of the sacrifice that also led to the change of heart? And we're faced to wrestle with our own selfishness and the fact that we can't see past our own noses and we objectify others around us instead of viewing them as people and image bearers. Jesus said, no greater love has anyone than this than he or she should lay their life down for their friends. And if we're going to live lives of meaning, we have to consider how can I spend my energy on the other, on those around me. The meaningful life also tests our allegiance. The meaningful life tests our allegiance. Jesus says this really challenging thing. He says, if you come to me and do not hate your own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. Now, throughout church history, there's been what I consider very unfortunate applications of this passage where people have... Uh, husbands have literally left their families at home and gone on missionary work for years because they thought, well, I've got I've to hate my family, so to speak, and I've got to leave them behind because I've got to love Christ more and I've got to leave them. And they, they don't provide, and they're not there emotionally, and they're not present. And other people have taken this, and they've abused the application of it. 
You might be familiar with the Jacob and Esau story, Abraham, Isaac, and Isaac had two boys, Jacob and Esau, and God chose to bless through Abraham's line through Jacob, the younger one, which is very countercultural because the older brother Esau should have received the blessing, but God went through the younger, and in the scriptures it says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, what do we do with this? We're at a bit of a theological conundrum because we read in the Bible that God is love, and all of a sudden we see that it says God hated something, and then it says Jesus says we got to hate our own family, and it just doesn't seem to square with us. And the reality is this, that there's no emotion in, these, in this word. Not when it says, Jacob, I love you, so I hate it. It was showing a value and a choice. In choosing Jacob, there is a natural rejection, at least through the blessing of Esau, not of salvation. It's not that God hated Esau. It's that he chose to go through Jacob. Jesus is not saying, hate your family. That doesn't make any sense. If it doesn't make any sense, use our noggins and use some very clear scripture to interpret unclear scripture. But he says, where is your allegiance, though? Where is your loyalty? Where is your primary affection? And do you love me first for my sake? Now, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult. We don't see something so drastic that we have to choose Jesus over our family necessarily, as many parts of the world uh, do see this, though. Other parts of the world and Christians see this choice before them. There, there is a, a woman named Sinna from East Africa, and she was Islamic in East Africa. And in that setting and in that religion in that setting, if anybody converted to Christianity, they could be completely rejected by their family, banished by their family, especially if she was a woman and she converted to Christianity, then her husband could beat her, her husband could uh, leave her, uh, and she would be completely outcast in society. So Sinna, coming out of the Islamic context, knows if I choose Christianity, if I show my allegiance is to Jesus, Above my husband, it's going to cost me. And she chose. She converted to Christianity. And she was immediately divorced. And in that culture, women are very dependent for their livelihood upon their husbands. So now, she's paying the price of this loyalty. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, thankfully, because of the generosity and I mean this sincerely, of the Western church. The generosity of the Western church and the missions uh, uh, causes of the, of the Western church. Uh, she's got connected with a group of women who understand this, and they have given her a life skill. They have taught her to sew, and so she sews garments of the uh, Ethiopian, what women would wear in Ethiopia, and then they sell them to women here in America so that they can make a living. Her allegiance was tested. Maybe ours won't look exactly like that, but it may look like something. Maybe it's we want to go on a certain mission trip 
Or we want to give to the poor, give to the church, and people think we're crazy for giving money away. They do. People think you're crazy for giving to charity or you're giving to this invisible God. Or you're going to, go, you're going to take your vacation time and you're going to go help people in Guatemala or, or Africa or Mexico or wherever you're going to go. You're going to take your time, your Saturday, and you're going to go build a house with Habitat for Humanity? I don't understand this. And our allegiance may be tested in other ways. Or maybe students want to go to a college that their parents don't approve of because, you know, maybe they feel a call to ministry and their parents start to ask, well, how are you going to make any money in that? And maybe the parents, maybe our allegiance will be tested because our children want to do something that is in their heart to do. And the question is, do we love them or do we love Christ enough to surrender them? Say, it's your, it's your, your child. The meaningful life tests our allegiance. Lastly, the meaningful life requires endurance. These two interesting parables about if you're going to set out to build a tower, like nobody sets out to build a tower and then realizes that, you know, they, they, they didn't look over the accounts and they didn't look over, you know, what was in their savings and they're not going to empty their 401k or they did and they can't get it finished and everybody just drives by their house, you know, especially with the current market these days, they drive by uh, the house with the lumber being what it is, and they think, oh, well, he didn't finish, of course. You didn't calculate. Got too, got too expensive for you. But then everybody would look at it and think, well, that's a shame. That's a shame. Why didn't you consider? Why didn't you take more care? Why didn't you calculate differently? Then Jesus adds the same principle with a bit of a twist. If you're going to battle and you only have 1,000 troops and you realize that the other king uh, across from you has 2,000 troops, why would you go into battle? You wouldn't. You would take careful consideration about what you're doing. You would sit down and reflect. Can I commit to this? Is this wise for me? Is this a good idea? It's going to be tough. I'm going to need endurance. When I was 30 years old, I decided to do a half Ironman. Uh, a, a half Ironman consists of three, is a race that consists of three different parts, swimming and then biking and then running. I grew up in West Texas, so I didn't do any of that stuff. I did like football, basketball, baseball type stuff. But for some reason, I got it. I was bored. And I was 30 years old, and I was like, ah, let's, let's do this. I mean, it's a mile marker for turning 30. So a half Ironman is a 1.2-mile swim and a 64-mile bike and then a 13.1-mile run. And I said this to my wife. I said, hey, I would really like to try to do this, um, but it's going to be a lot of training. And there's a few long days during the week, like where I'm training for anywhere from two to six hours. And so, I, you know, if it's okay with you and can we agree to this? Because we had young kids. And I was like, do you, would you support me in this or is now a bad time? She said, no, 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 it's great. I want you to do it. I totally support you in this. But here's the thing. You will not quit. <laughs> Take me four. I, I don't plan on quitting. I'm planning on finishing. And she said, that's fine. But once we're in this thing and it gets really hard and you come to me and you say, I can't do it anymore, I'm going to tell you, you cannot quit. Get back out there and train. I thought to myself, fine, fine, fine. Yeah, I agree. It's fine. No problem. I'll, I'll do this. Fine. Uh, I won't quit. Six weeks in, on a Saturday, I had about a four-hour training ahead of me. And in, in, in those races, you don't, you don't calculate 
like mileage, you just do time. Like, oh, go, go on a three-hour run. Okay. You know, go on a four-hour bike ride. So I had a long day ahead of me, and I looked at her, and I just said, ah, oh, I just, I can't do this, you know. I think I'm out. I think I'm out. She goes, you're not quitting. Yeah, I, I know. I didn't mean like that. I was just talking about how hard it was. I'm going to get right back in and go right back after it. Several times throughout the training, I wanted to quit. I wanted to give up. It was just too hard. And she said, you're not quitting. You're finishing the race. So I stuck with it, and I finished. I got in the race. I finished the race. That was the goal. Set the bar low. Just finish. You know, don't die. Like, survive. You know, I finished. That was great. But I wasn't prepared for the endurance because it was theory, not experience. It's like boot camp versus the battle. It's like a first-time mom knowing and hearing and people telling her how it's going to be, but her body not experiencing it yet. It's different. It's like the, the young couple when they get in their first fight, and some of the seasoned couples are like, yeah, I told you relationships work, and they're like, no, not us. We're so much in love. It will never happen to us. We will never get in an argument. We know in theory, but then experience comes along. And Jesus says, I, I, I want you to know that you got to take the theory seriously because the experience is going to come along and it's going to be challenging. And there's going to be suffering and there's going to be sickness and there's going to be setbacks and there's going to be persecution and it's going to hurt. And it's going to cost you something. Jesus doesn't want us to be in a hurry to follow him because Jesus doesn't want us to be in a hurry to leave him. And we may need people in our corner saying, you can do this, you got it, don't quit, don't quit, you got it. We need encouragement, we need people to pray for us, we need people to say, when we've lost our faith, and I believe this is thoroughly biblical, when we're struggling with our faith, we need people to say, ride the coattails of my faith until you find yours again. That's what the gift of community is. And if we want to have that depth and density then we'll have to understand it's going to be a lifelong commitment of endurance, that, that it will test our allegiance, and that God invites us to take his yoke upon him in one of sacrifice. But let me, let me close with this thought. When we're counting the cost, when we're deciding if it's worth it to follow Jesus, if Christianity is just a set of traditions that we tout, the cost won't be worth it. If Christianity for us is a set of dusty doctrines that we think that we have to mentally ascribe to, then the cost won't be worth it. But if at its core, Christianity foundationally is a love affair with the living God, then come what may, we'll stay with him. God is never private, always personal. Saves us, rescues us, places us in right relationship with him and says in a very circular way, I love you because I love you and nothing can change that. And if we deeply understand that and we deeply let that sink in, then we'll be able to count the cost 
because we'll live from a place of his love, being covered by his grace. And come what may, whatever sacrifice we may have to go through, we'll know that there's one who's already sacrificed on our behalf, who's already walked that road of isolation and betrayal and loneliness on our behalf, who knows exactly what we're experiencing and has compassion upon us. Walking with him, we will live a life of meaning. And I think our weariness will recede just a bit. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your truth. We're so thankful for you. God, we thank you that you love us Regardless, you see all our weaknesses, you see all our sins, you see all the inclinations of our hearts and our minds, and you still walk around pointing to us saying, I'm so proud of them, I'm so happy to be a part of them, I'm binding myself to them, they are my beloved. That kind of grace gives us shivers in our spine. That kind of grace scandalizes us, wakes us up, calls us to action. That you see us completely and you love us. Father, for some of us, we've been too busy to see you. Help us slow down. For some of us, we say yes to everything and we need grace to say no to something. God, for some of us, we're so distracted and living on the surface. We're so fatigued. We need your spirit to revive us. Help us, we pray. And we surrender anew to you. And we recommit to you as a person today. In Christ's name, amen.